sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, navigating the emergency room, the entry zone to the healthcare system. Then, a terrific new resource for staying healthy this year, taking care of you. The Empowered Women's Guide to Better Health. Do you recognize that theme song? It is one of television's most celebrated medical dramas of all time, ER. It was based on a Michael Crichton novel with a simple premise. Follow the goings-on at a major Chicago hospital. Popular culture, whether it be TV shows, novels, or other mediums, often portray emergency rooms, aka ERs, when in need of a healthcare setting. The rationale is simple. Of all the places in the healthcare system that you may touch over the course of your life, I can almost guarantee that most of you will start your healthcare journey with a visit to the emergency room or ER at some point. The ER is like a sacred place to me. It's where births and deaths and everything in between are geographically juxtaposed next to one another. It's a place that everyone recognizes and hopes not to need. Yet ERs are incredibly overutilized. According to the CDC, nearly 136 million patients visit emergency rooms in the United States per year with around 30% of those visits relating to injuries. The ER has its own unique culture and approach, even within the healthcare world. As a result, to get the best results from an ER visit, it's important to understand how they work and how to make them work best for you when you truly need them. Joining us today to understand all of this, are Dr. Brittany Beal. She's an emergency room physician at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Beal, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you back. And Dr. David Cairo, he is an emergency physician at the University of Florida Health Jacksonville here in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Cairo, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Dr. Beal. I'm going to ask a kind of like a question that may seem self-evident, but I'd be curious to see how you answer it. What is the main role of an emergency room? So the emergency room or emergency department, as we call it now, um, essentially is it's the gateway to the rest of the hospitals, kind of how I see it. But it, originally, its foundation is to stabilize and to manage emergencies. So any critical emergencies that are occurring, um, whether heart attacks, strokes, that's where the patients were supposed to go. It is also the place where we are able to integrate care as far as to contact consultants, to contact surgeons for patients coming in with post-operative complications. 
it has a lot of different roles. It's kind of, we say as emergency physicians, we're a jack of all trades. So we kind of see a little bit of everything because the emergency department is a little bit of everything like you, like you said in the intro. So it really truly is the gateway to the rest of the hospital and to um, determining where the patient needs to go next as far as does the patient need to go to surgery does the patient need to go to follow up outpatient does the patient need to be admitted to the hospital or to the icu that's where from the second that we see a patient seen in the ed we're trying to determine okay where does this patient need to go next after they've been seen in the emergency department where is this patient ultimately going to go it's kind of our our logic as an emergency provider originally the emergency department is by its definition, we are dealing with emergencies, but um, with the way that the emergency departments are now, as far as being the gateways to the hospital, um, we do see more than just emergencies, like we kind of discussed before, um, as far as seeing patients with post-op complications, seeing patients that aren't really sure where to go next for their health care. So we see a lot of patients that are just kind of lost in the healthcare system, and we're trying to help them kind of navigate their way through that, through the ED as well. Dr. Caro, I, I know you're an emergency room physician, as is Dr. Beal, but who's staffing these emergency room? And, and is there a difference between that emergency room specialist like yourselves versus other hospital-based doctors? The emergency physician... Uh, is someone who has gone through specific training and has had years of experience in learning specifically about emergency conditions. Um, and so as a person who has specialized training in, in exactly what comes into emergency departments and how we take care of them and manage them, um, as far as what we do differently than other places or other physicians, we have hands in a lot of different areas. One of the areas that, that we do a lot of work is in resuscitation, and especially those folks that come in that are extremely ill and at the worst part of their, their illness. That's one of the areas that we focus on up front. We interface with every specialty. And so it is part of our job description to be multilingual, so to speak, and be able to talk the same language as other specialists and be able to help navigate through complex situations and any situation, whether that be adult, pediatric, trauma, surgical, medical, and the like. Dr. Beal, um, there's a lot of doctors, as I just heard Dr. Caro and yourself say, that are in the emergency room. So when a patient is in the emergency room, who's the one who makes the decision? Who, who gets to make the decision on the care of a given patient, given there's so many different doctors in and out from different groups? So that's a good question. Um, sometimes uh, there can be, as we say, too many cooks in the kitchen, but ultimately the emergency department physician is the one who is initially assessing this patient, determining whether this patient needs to be admitted to the hospital or um, can be stably sent home, um, but in discussion with the other physicians. So it really is a team effort as far as discussing with our colleagues, our hospitalist colleagues, cardiology colleagues, to determine a plan for the patient to see if they are able to be admitted versus if they're able to follow up closely outpatient in clinic. So it is a discussion. Ultimately, like I said, the emergency physician is the one that's advocating for the patient, um, you know, as far as needing admission versus being discharged. But uh, we do have close conversations with our colleagues to figure out what is the best path for this patient to take. Dr. Caro, one of the biggest issues I hear from all patients is basically how long it can take to be seen in the emergency room. How is the order of who gets seen in the ER decided? How, how is that decision made? Who's first in line? In fact, the New York Times just did uh, an investigative piece uh, naming New York University, saying that people with lots of money get to the front of the line versus everyone else which gets into this issue of time, but how has that decided the order of it? Ideally, what we try to do is triage patients based on the level of severity of their complaint. There are a number of different ways that this can be done. Uh, one common one is called the Emergency Severity Index, which breaks different chief complaints up into different categories of severity. And we try to see the most severe first. 
And um, as part of our role in the emergency department, obviously, first and foremost is to save lives. And if there is a life-threatening, limb-threatening issue that occurs, that person automatically gets bumped to the front of the line so that we can deal with that life threat first, um, knowing that that also puts other people in a little bit longer time frame and they have to wait. Um, and that's unfortunate, but that's part of, uh, part of what we have to deal with within emergency medicine. Uh, we appreciate everybody's patience while that happens, uh, but it's, it's uh, sometimes uh, une inevitable, unavoidable that we see uh, a number of critically ill patients all at one time, and it does back things up into the waiting room for a little bit of time for those less severe illnesses. Dr. Beal, I'm going to ask you a very broad question. I'm going to follow it up with Dr. Caro on the opposite side of question, but I'll start with you. Overall, what's your general advice to all of our listeners out there as to when should you go to the emergency room? So I always advise patients, if you feel something is wrong, if you feel like you're having severe chest pain, seizures, severe, severe headache, anything that's dramatically different for you, altered mental status, you know, absolutely come to the emergency department. The emergency department is for patients that are having an acute emergency and potentially need to be admitted to the hospital. So determining if you feel like there's something truly wrong, not just, oh, I have a runny nose or, oh, you know, my, my throat's a little sore. Yes, we can certainly see those conditions at the emergency department, but as Dr. Carroll was saying, there can be a delay with that as far as um, those patients being kind of bumped to the back of the line by, by more emergent conditions. But people that are having true problems, breathing, low oxygen levels, life-threatening emergencies, that's truly for the emergency department. But that being said, the emergency department sees all different types of complaints from sore throats to runny noses as well. But a different option for, for those type of complaints is certainly urgent cares are a different option as well. And we'll get into that, but I, I appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Kerr, I'm going to ask you the flip side of the question. When should you not go to the emergency room? And that may be a tough question to answer, but what's your general advice on that? That's one of the more difficult ones to answer. And it comes down to the person's belief and how severe their symptoms are. Is it something new? Is it something different? Is it something severe? Is it something that you don't know how to handle or don't have the ability to ask your primary care provider about? Um, those things that are scary, things that somebody who is a reasonable person, a prudent layperson is what we would call that, you feel like it's something that can wait and you want to, to see your primary doctor, obviously that's within your purview and you can make that decision. But with the caveat that there are things that are very severe and sometimes we won't know this thing until uh, that person gets evaluated. So it's not uncommon that we have people talk with their primary care provider and their primary care provider sends them to the emergency department because they call on the phone or, or it seems like it might be more severe than what they could handle from a phone visit or a teleconference visit. Um, so it, it comes down to prudence, common sense, things that you feel comfortable with that you don't feel need to be immediately seen. Those things can probably wait. Dr. Beal, I, I know that oftentimes uh, anywhere uh, you go in the United States, state of Florida, it doesn't matter, uh, ERs, are, they're always filled with people. And uh, I guess uh, my question to you is, uh, are you seeing a lot more patients coming to the ER first due to lack of primary care physicians? Um, is that something that is still a very common reality? Yes. No, we, we are certainly seeing increasing um, number and volume of patients um, it, daily. Um, we certainly see emergencies, but we also are seeing more and more patients that um, are either being referred by their primary care physician, kind of as Dr. Carroll was saying, to come to the emergency department for care. But also we're seeing a lot of patients too, like you were mentioning, 
um, that don't have primary care physicians and that um, unfortunately have nowhere else to turn as far as for their care needs. So they turn to the emergency department. So we frequently have, have seen patients, um, an increasing number of patients that don't have access to primary care physicians. And so they come to the emergency department with questions on how to manage their blood pressure, how to manage um, diabetes, and they don't have the appropriate follow-up. So um, one of the struggles we have in the emergency department is trying to help these patients um, get the appropriate follow-up and get established with primary care physicians so that they can get the care that they need, um, but not in the emergency setting. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, it's our Navigating the Emergency Room show, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Dr. Caro, I know Dr. Beal brought this up a little earlier, but I'll ask you, can you help to distinguish for us, for our listeners and, and, and me, What's the biggest difference between an emergency room and a freestanding urgent care clinic? The, the terminology is really important here. Um, an urgent care center is an office or a separate facility that is designed to take care of low acuity type of complaints that can be dealt with on a same day basis. Um, and it's designed mainly for folks that wouldn't be able to access their primary care provider on that same day. There are freestanding emergency departments that now exist that actually offer more capabilities, actually offer what you could get at an emergency department, but are separate from a physical hospital. So if you were seen at one of those centers and deemed needed to be admitted to the hospital for whatever reason, you would be transferred from that center to a hospital to be admitted. And then in the emergency department, regular emergency departments, what we traditionally think of, those are hospital-based and have access to all the capabilities that a hospital would have uh, from that emergency center um, and is what we traditionally think of when we think of an emergency department. So there are number, a wide range of different ways that uh, your, your listeners can access emergency care or urgent care. Knowing what those differences are really important for where you decide to go if there's a, an issue. For somebody, as Dr. Beal said earlier, that has a serious complaint like chest pain or seizures or uh, a serious injury, those folks are better off at an emergency department. Um, and so knowing whether it's the site you're targeting is an emergency department versus an urgent care center is very important. Dr. Beal, uh, what's the biggest misconception about emergency rooms that you think a lot of patients have that you work to try to dispel? Um, that's a good question. I think one of one of the misconceptions is um, that a lot of times patients come to the emergency department with complaints that have been ongoing for months and months and sometimes years, and um, they're searching for an answer. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of times in the emergency department, we're not able to give them that answer because um, these kind of chronic conditions um, require specialists and more advanced testing than we can potentially do in the emergency department. So, you know, we are able to rule out any acute emergencies and make sure nothing, as I say, is big, bad, and scary is going on. But unfortunately, we're not able to give the answer a lot of times to patients that they're looking for. So a lot of times people will come to the emergency department looking for this grand answer to their problem. And unfortunately, the emergency department a lot of times is not the place where that's going to happen just because we don't have the resources or the tools um, to figure it out. So these chronic conditions, you know, sometimes we can make an answer, but a lot of times we can't, which is frustrating for the patient and also for us because, you know, we want to help them. But um, at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely hard for the patient to find who can help them with that answer. And the emergency department a lot of times isn't, isn't the best place for that answer. 
Dr. Carroll, one of the things that you often hear from folks that are frustrated when they go to the emergency room is that they weren't heard, or I went to the ER, I was sent out, and then I had to come back. I guess I, I, I turn to you as an emergency room specialist. What should patients do to get the best care in the emergency room? I Put another way, what's the best way that they are heard, if you will, with regards to their symptoms? Uh, great question. I know we do a lot of training on how to listen to patients, and we're trying to make sure that we hear correctly. I think if I were giving advice to somebody going in, I would want to make sure that to tell that person to be clear with the symptom, make sure that you're aware of specifically the main reason you're going in, and then also to have a good handle on your past history and having a medication list, knowing what surgeries you've had done to you, knowing what medical conditions you have. It seems straightforward to access a computer and get that information, but even in this day and age, sometimes it's hard for us to access that information if, let's say, you're typically a patient of one healthcare system and you wind up in a different healthcare and we can't see each other's electronic records. So I think making sure that you have information at your fingertips, making sure that you know your medical history and being as clear as possible with the symptoms that you have, realizing that we have a defined amount of time that we're gonna spend to try and nail down what that, that primary symptom is. Why are you there today? so that we can make sure we're not missing something life-threatening related to that complaint. Dr. Beal, telemedicine has really emerged as a big option for patients, especially during the pandemic, mostly because of the pandemic. I'm curious, how has telemedicine impacted emergency room care, if at all? Yes, so telemedicine was is definitely helpful, and it was extremely helpful at the height of the pandemic. Um, we were using telemedicine to see COVID patients um, in their rooms where we could be outside of the room. Um, it's also something that we've been able to utilize um, even now as far as being able to um, triage and screen patients, um, uh, basically using telemedicine to get an initial evaluation, initial medical screening exam on a patient um, to determine their level of severity as far as um, you know, whether this patient appears very ill versus if this patient is a lower acuity patient, um, something that we are definitely utilizing more and more as our uh, clinic volumes um, increase um, and as our emergency department volumes increase. So it allows us, it's another tool that we are able to use to um, assess more patients um, and to determine the best, um, the best outcomes for those patients. Dr. Caro, another big issue that occurred over the past year was the Dobbs versus Jackson decision uh, on abortion. Uh, I'm curious, has Dobbs versus Jackson, the decision that was made, has it impacted the emergent care of women, particularly those who are having miscarriages in the emergency room? Another really important question and uh, so far um, my experience has been that it has not although it is something that we're keeping very close eye on and making sure that we understand what the rules and regulations are surrounding it but also uh, to, we want to make sure we take care of the patient correctly and make sure we do the best for our patient um, and you know there are a couple of specific conditions um, that are life-threatening for mothers that we are going to have to treat regardless of legal legality. Um, and that hasn't, thankfully, impacted our care of patients in that setting. But it's something that I know that multiple organizations are looking at, something that I know our hospital is watching closely, as is Mayo. Um, and I know that we're, we're all very concerned to make sure that mothers get the appropriate care that they deserve and safe care and, and care that keeps them healthy. 
Dr. Beal, a lot of uh, folks that I talk to, they want to be taken to a specific hospital, uh, much because of what Dr. Caro said, uh, they, their doctors are at a certain location, but perhaps the ambulance, if an ambulance is called or something along those lines, takes them to the nearest hospital. What's the best advice for those patients who want to be taken to a very specific hospital for ER care? I would advise in those cases, um, if there's a true emergency, a true heart attack, stroke, um, in those cases, the EMS, uh, the EMTs are have the ability to kind of supersede the patient's wishes at that point as far as to get them to the safest and closest facility to treat that emergent medical condition. So if someone's having a heart attack or a stroke, they need to go to the closest uh, hospital um, that is available to take care of them, um, even though it may not be the patient's preference. Um, that In that case, it is life-determining. Um, the patient does have the option to um, request, you know, to go to a certain facility if uh, they get their care there. Um, but keeping in mind um, that, you know, they, they may be able to go to that facility, but there's um, there's no telling what the weight could be. Um, there's there's a lot of different factors as far as determining when that patient will be seen. Um, but if for some reason a patient does end up at another facility where um, where they don't normally get care, a lot of hospitals now um, have an integrated EMR, a medical record system, where um, a lot of providers are able to um, share uh, medical records um, electronically. And if not, there's also the um, ability to just request the records um, from the patient's original um, medical facility so that we can all be in the same loop. Dr. Caro, if someone arrives at the emergency room, must an emergency room care for all patients that arrive at that emergency room? So there is a federal law called EMTALA that requires all emergency departments to screen and stabilize any patient that shows up to an emergency department. So by law, we are required to medically screen, find out what's going on and stabilize before we would ever consider discharging or doing anything further. So we are required to. Dr. Beal, one of the other issues that's really common right now are mental health issues, uh, and they are certainly taking front and center in so much of American hospitals and ERs. Are mental health emergencies, are, is, is the emergency room the best place for such care? I, what's the best advice in a mental health emergency where people should go? So I think... Always, you know, for the patient, if they have nowhere else to go and they feel they're truly having an emergency, come to the emergency department. Um, the mental health emergencies um, are are definitely treated in the emergency department. Um, I think that if someone is having a mental emergency where they're scared that they want to take their own life or they're scared that something's, something's wrong with them as far as mentally, um, the emergency department is more than capable of, of helping these patients, and we um, are able to um, medically assess these patients, um, help stabilize them, depending on the specific hospital, um, having psychiatry see them in the emergency department, um, getting medications started, um, and also potentially transferring them to inpatient psychiatric facilities. Um, we had the ability as emergency physicians to um, write something uh, which is called a, um, a Baker Act in Florida, where essentially we um, have uh, with up, up to 72 hours of um, uh, in 72 hours, a physician, um, a psychiatrist has to see the patient and assess the patient. Um, and we hold the patient um, either in the ED or any um a psychiatric facility for this evaluation. And this is for the patient's safety to determine that they don't um, have any um, risk of suicidal ideation to, to um, ensure that they're not um, a danger to themselves or to others. So the emergency department, we are 
we are all very trained in how to um, manage these type of emergencies and to help these patients. So um, if someone is having a, a mental emergency, certainly we can we can certainly help with that. Dr. Caro and, and Dr. Beal, very briefly, I just want to give you an opportunity to have any uh, advice you want to give to our listeners out there when it comes just to the issue of emergency rooms. Uh, any, any golden advice uh, quickly, uh, and I'll ask each of you, uh, starting with you, Dr. Caro, uh, anything you want to make sure you, you let our listeners know? Well, first, I want to say thanks to everyone who's listening. I think uh, this is a really important question. I think reiterating some of the things that we've said, when you go to an emergency department, having a good handle on symptoms you're having and being able to explain those, but also knowing your medical history, that goes a long way towards helping the emergency providers right up front to take care of you. I would also ask for patients, uh, and in, in that regard, we are doing our best to see and stabilize as many folks as possible. Um, and we do that everybody that walks through the doors, and we want to make sure that everybody is seen appropriately and in, in a timely way. And I promise uh, everybody is doing their best to do that. So patience and um, and thanks for for patience that everybody already shows. Uh, we need as much help as we can get, and trying to make sure that everybody's taken care of appropriately. Dr. Beal, last word uh, quickly. Yes, just to kind of piggyback off of what uh, Dr. Caro said. Um, patience is really important. Um, we are all doing our best to try and see as many patients as we can to help as many people as we can. And a lot of times we have to see patients in the hallways and we know that's not ideal and we know that people don't want to be seen in the hallway, but we are doing our best and um, we are all just trying to help each other. Um, so if there's a little bit of a wait, if there's a delay, if you have to be seen in a hallway, understand that it's it's part of the process. Unfortunately, it's just part of uh, the the system at this point, and we're all just trying to do our best to help everyone. I want to let that be our last word. We've been uh, talking to Dr. David Caro and Dr. Brittany Beal. They are both emergency room specialists. Dr. Beal at Mayo Clinic in Florida. Dr. Caro at the University of Florida Health Jacksonville. And uh, I want to thank them both for such terrific uh, information and advice today. And up next, Taking Care of You, a terrific new guide to better health. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, and I'm Dr. Joe Servin. Here's a question you don't hear every day. What do you get when you combine an orthopedist and a medical anthropologist? Uh, no, it's not a joke. The answer is one of the best reference books I've come across in years. Dr. Mary O'Connor is an orthopedic surgeon, healthcare entrepreneur, and former U.S. Olympic athlete for the women's rowing team. She's co-founder and chief medical officer of Vori Health, a spine and orthopedic telemedicine company. Her co-author, Conwell Hawk, is a medical anthropologist, community organizer, and nonprofit consultant who leads the New York City Women's Health Programs at the Arnhold Institute for Global Health at Mount Sinai's Icon School of Medicine. They have a new book, which is a perfect holiday gift, entitled Taking Care of You, The Empowered Woman's Guide to Better Health. Dr. O'Connor is on the line with us now. Dr. O'Connor, welcome to our show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Servan. I'm excited to be with you and your listeners. It is exciting to have you here. So I'll ask the, the, the most important of the questions, why did you write this book? What? Why did you construct this? Because it's such a terrific reference book when I went through it. Well, I have been in the health equity space uh, working in this area for probably about 15 or 20 years. And 
that was really driven, my interest was driven by the challenges that I saw for women in particular in orthopedic care. Uh, and there's lots of disparities that we know exist, particularly in the musculoskeletal space. Women, individuals of color have a higher burden of arthritis and joint pain uh, compared to white men. And the care that they receive, unfortunately, is not always equitable. So I have a lot of experience, both in terms of being an orthopedic surgeon and caring for patients, as well as on the national advocacy side, where I chair a nonprofit coalition called Movement is Life, focused on eliminating healthcare disparities. That so. is amazing when I hear all of that. So, so did what 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 said? Okay, I want to put something together now. Yes, I mean it was it. I had this idea for the book that there needs to be a better way of empowering women as individuals, as patients, to receive better care. Because obviously, there's lots of things that we need to improve in the system, right? how care is delivered, educating our clinicians, addressing social determinants of health, um, insurance challenges. I mean, there's, it's multifactorial. But one of the things that could happen is to try and better educate that individual so that they can basically be an advocate for themselves to get better care. And that was the genesis of the book. So when I was at Yale, um, I'm, I'm actually, we've never met in real life yet, which is another kind of interesting sidebar. Um, Conwall and I had some interactions and all through Zoom, internet, et cetera. And I said, you know what? What do you think about us writing a book? Because I, I knew that I... <laughs> you really? Be, I, no, really. Uh, I, I thought this could be fun and I need someone to help me do it and help hold me accountable. You know, then it becomes a project and I'm not doing, just doing it on my own. And we've worked very well together. Um, and we, we came up with this idea and actually sent the idea to a whole bunch of our, our friends to say, what do you think about the need for this book? And there was like, wow, that would be great. I was shocked. Joe, that that there wasn't a book like this already out there. There's books on pregnancy and, you know, some books on menopause, but there really wasn't what I would call a good general health book that is outside the bikini areas of the, the way people traditionally think of women's health care as being, you know, reproductive in nature. And of course, women's health is, you know, so so broad. Yeah, so the it is. point of this book was to try and address those gaps. Uh, Dr. O'Connor, uh, there are so many practical aspects of this book that we, we can't even possibly begin to cover on this show. But I'm going to ask you kind of like a, a fundamental question, and you just kind of alluded to it. Um, it's, it seems like it would be self-evident, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you define women's health? Well, I define that as, as the health for anyone who's a woman. And because there's, because one of the, one of the important um, things that we need to remember is that every individual has a sex and every individual also has a gender, which is our self uh, expression and how, you know, we see ourselves in society. But health is still very driven by sex, meaning our biology, and influenced by those um, societal factors uh, where we live, our access to fresh fruit and vegetables. You know, is it safe for us to go out and walk in our neighborhoods to get exercise? So Health is the summation of all of those factors, and that's why part of this book also includes a whole section on what we call taking care of you. That's promoting healthful behaviors uh, for for women, which then Joe tr translate into um, the family. Got it. 
you discuss in this book how women can find the right healthcare team. Uh, what do you suggest that most women may not be doing with regards to your advice in that arena? I have a simple answer for that. Follow your instincts. If you are going to see a clinician, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, anyone on the healthcare team, and you feel that they are not listening to you, then they're not the right clinician for you. Yes, yes. And, and you know, Dr. Servan, you're, you're in medicine. You understand this. I do. I, am, I was constantly surprised at how many patients would come to me for orthopedic consultation because they were not doing well after an operation. And then I would say, well, did you talk to your surgeon who did the operation about these problems or these concerns? And the response was, well, um, this person didn't listen to me. Now, <laughs> wow. sometimes, sometimes I would then say, well, do you feel that, like, did you sense that they listened to you before you had the surgery? And the answer would be something along the line of, no, I knew they didn't have a good bedside manner, but I heard they were a great technician. And this is so mind-boggling to me. And, and so one of my in, important messages to the listener is you need, if you're having surgery, a surgeon who is both technically excellent and who listens to you because the surgeon that doesn't listen to you is not before the surgery, is not going to listen to you after the surgery if you have a concern or heaven forbid, if you have a complication. So it's communication, communication, communication. That should be the number one skill that good doctors and nurses have because that is essential for shared decision-making. It's essential for obtaining a good history that, as you know, drives the clinical diagnosis. And it's just, it's just so critical. So when I hear women say, no, I went ahead with the surgery because I heard that typically he, he was a great surgeon and I just knew he didn't have good bedside manner. I, I, it just pains me. It actually pains me. It's so funny you say that because I think I hear that on almost a nearly daily basis, even though I'm not a surgeon, uh, but uh, often in that same description. So I, I completely uh, get it from the way uh, you're framing it. One of the other things that you tackle in this reference book is about how to get credible information on the web, on the internet. So much information now has a celebrity twist on it. Uh, what advice do you have for women in terms of finding the best and most accurate information uh, since many are going to a celebrity-based website often for healthcare information? So I think the internet is both one of, is both a blessing and a curse. And it's a blessing because it has democratized the ability for individuals to get information. The curse is, is they don't always go to the right place to get right. good information, <laughs> right? Yes. So, so in general, uh, solid advice is to, is to recommend that, that someone go to websites of reputable institutions, such as Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic, or, or, you know, Massachusetts General. I mean, a reputable right. medical institution, because, as we know, the information that is posted on those sites are, are peer-reviewed and vetted for accuracy. So that's really, it's very important that people do that. And one of the reasons is because, and you know this, Dr. Sturban, you experienced this too, Patients go in to see their doctor, and they already have what I call a self-diagnosis, meaning they don't really know what's wrong with them, but they are concerned. They have ideas in their head about what is wrong or what could be wrong. And if 
the clinician doesn't elicit that, the patient will leave either thinking, um, how, how does, you know, I'll use myself, how does Dr. O'Connor not know that my bone pain is really from cancer? Because, you know, my mother died of breast cancer, and yes. maybe I really have breast cancer. And if I don't elicit that concern in the course of my interaction with that patient, uh, they're going to leave there still with this concern in their head. So we all carry self-diagnoses into the clinical encounter, and we need to address them on both sides of the conversation with the clinician asking the patient, okay, um, how does what I'm sharing with you fit with what you were thinking? You know, before you came into the office, because a lot of us have thoughts about why we're having pain or this, this condition. How, do, how does this all, you know, jive with you? At the same time, if the clinician is not asking the patient that, we want, we want the patient, particularly women, to be empowered to say, you know, Dr. O'Connor, my mother died of breast cancer. Somewhere in the back of my head, I have this nagging thought, maybe I have breast cancer too. How are you so confident that I don't have breast cancer? For which then I can go into an explanation, right? Right. Or I can say, you know, maybe we should do some additional tests to make absolutely sure. So this, this is where the partnership between the patient and the doctor develops. And, and that is the partnership that we need in order to drive a great patient experience and great clinical outcomes. So very true. You know, another practical nugget in the book uh, that you bring up is a topic that I don't think gets a lot of, of coverage, but is the question of when should you go to urgent care versus the emergency room? How can women, or for that matter, any patient, make a distinction between those two in terms of making the right call as to where they should go? So it's, that's a great question, um, and we actually have in the chapter a nice little guide and grid that talks to give people guidance, right, as to when they should use what type of facility. Um, you know, for example, you should go to the emergency department if you're having trouble breathing or chest pain. You can go to urgent care when you have a cold, a cough, maybe some mild asthma. Right. Right. So, I mean, if you if you injured yourself and you're really bleeding, you need to go to the emergency department. If you have um, something more minor, that can be, you know, a scrape. You cut yourself, but you're not bleeding significantly. That can easily be dealt with at urgent care. Got it. Uh, one last question, uh, since we have time for one more. Uh, and this may be probably a very hard question, but I'll ask it anyway. What What do you think is a common misconception men have about women's health that needs to be corrected? That's an easy question. <laughs> okay. I, think, <laughs> I can't I wait for the, the answer here. <laughs> uh, I think the biggest misconception that men have about women's health is that women exaggerate their symptoms. And we are, uh, we are trained in our society to view women as more along the line of exaggerating their pain, exaggerating their symptoms, and men being more stoic. And the challenge there is that Women then get misdiagnosed, delay in treatment that can be life-threatening. And I ha unfortunately, I, I have seen this happen, where the woman's complaint is not taken seriously. And I know that if a man had been in that emergency department with those same symptoms, they would have had a test immediately, where the woman is said, you know, is told to go home. This isn't serious. And then she comes back six hours later and it's disaster. 
So it's because we have this bias. So if there was one thing I could do, you know, if I was queen of the universe, it would be to have all healthcare clinicians take women's complaints as seriously as they do men. And again, you know, I don't think they're, they're not approaching this from a standpoint of being bad people or evil people, but this is how we are biased in our society. Mary, I love that answer, and I'm going to let that be the last word to this because uh, this is terrific. Uh, I, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about this amazing book because uh, I think that so many people will really be helped by this. Well, that was the goal. Uh, the whole uh, purpose of the book is to help women you know, be better advocates for themselves and to get better health care. and. Um, Love feedback from readers, and you, of course, can purchase the book online at, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, which I affectionately refer to as Target, because, of course, I can't go into Target without spending, you know, three digits when I go in to buy just one thing. And I will also mention, Dr. Servan, that proceeds from the book go to benefit research and education at Mayo Clinic. Oh, that's wonderful to hear that. Uh, well, Mary, again, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, and, and thank you again for an amazing book. My pleasure. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Dr. Mary O'Connor. She is co-founder and chief medical officer of Vori Health, a spine and orthopedic telemedicine company. She and her co-author, Conwell Hawk, have just published a terrific new book entitled Taking Care of You, The Empowered Women's Guide to better health. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva is our director. Next week's program is our monthly medical roundtable. If you have questions for this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jsurvin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.